0: Welcome to the PROVCAST, a regular podcast of Providence, a Journal of Christianity and Global Affairs. I'm Managing Editor Drew Griffin. The month of October has been a tumultuous month in the Northeast Syria and in uh, the Near East as the region responds to the sudden U.S. decision to withdraw forces from Syria, which have been supporting and buttressing uh, Kurdish forces in the region as they fought against ISIS and attempted to uh, secure for themselves some sort of sub-national regional uh, presence. The fallout has been um, quick, and the consequences have been dire. We've seen the invasion of Syria by Turkey. We've seen the implementation of sanctions by the U.S. against Turkey. Uh, recently, the, um, uh, a brokered ceasefire uh, by the United States um, between Turkey and, and uh, the Kurds. Uh, much of this um, uh, chaos uh, needs to be explained. And so to equip us uh, to understand what is going on, uh, I'm happy to welcome Faisal Atani, He's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's been a guest here on um, uh, the broadcast before. So, Faisal, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. So, this is a rapidly changing situation, and, you know, we're recording this on a uh, Friday um, uh, two weeks after the uh, tweet by President Trump announcing kind of suddenly it seems without much notice to either his administration to the allies or to the region that the us would be withdrawing um, and every single day there has been new developments and and uh, it's it's almost hard to put your finger on the situation to try and uh, you know hold it down long enough to explain what exactly is kind of going on but I thought it would be helpful, um, and I wanted to just um, lean on your expertise to maybe, let's start by giving us um, a, a picture beyond what I painted kind of in the, in the t- introduction as uh, to where we are at this point in this, in this conflict.
1: Well, at this very minute, the two main belligerents in this conflict are the Turkish military and a Kurdish or largely Kurdish militia called the YPG uh we can get into the basic background of these respective actors. It's complicated. At the minute, what's supposed to be going on now is a ceasefire between the Turkish and Kurdish forces brokered by the White House yesterday. And that ceasefire is supposed to last for five days, after which Turkey is supposed to be granted essentially a safe zone, a 20-mile deep buffer along the Syrian-Turkish border. That would supposedly address its uh, its security concerns on the ground, and the Kurdish forces are supposed to pull back essentially south southward into Syria. Now Turkey accepted this yesterday because it essentially gives Turkey what it wants under institutionalized U.S. cover. Uh, but the uh, Kurdish forces said yesterday, as soon as yesterday, uh, that they read it actually completely differently, and that they would not be withdrawing from uh, from these areas. So. Not surprisingly, this wire broke down today, and uh, I guess we're back to square
0: one. Right. So help us maybe understand if you can, um, some of the, uh, you know, particulars of these actors, because we, um, I think it's probably a surprise. Uh, and I think maybe even you and I have talked about this in previous podcasts that probably a lot of Americans didn't even know we had troops in Syria until last year when, uh, president Trump at the end of the year said, Oh, by the way, we have troops in Syria and we're going to withdraw them, uh, you know, and take them out cause we've defeated ISIS. Um, and, you know, we have been partnered with the Kurds. Uh, They have been uh, kind of our allies. Uh, And so there has been this massive cry on the part of kind of the international community, the diplomatic community, uh, even kind of people within state and within the official apparatus. Congress has passed a unanimous resolution condemning uh, President Trump's action to withdraw and kind of abandoning the Kurds. But it it might be helpful to kind of even just talk about when we talk about the Kurds, what exactly are we talking about? Because this isn't necessarily a monolithic group. We're talking about 35 million people in four different uh, Middle Eastern, Near Eastern uh, countries of Turkey and Iran and Iraq and Syria. Um, And so it's help maybe describe when we're talking about the Kurds, the Kurds that are being abandoned, the Kurds that are viewed by Turkey as a, a terrorist organization or a regional threat. Like, Help us maybe assess, if you can, uh, when we're talking about the Kurds, exactly who we're talking about.
1: Yeah, no, we we're talking about something quite specific, actually. Uh, the, uh, the, the heart of this issue is that Turkey, which is a kind of very nationalist republic, very strongly Turkish in its identity, has a substantial Kurdish majority living in its territory, over, over a big chunk of its territory, actually. And w- from within that Kurdish population, There is a a militant group called the PKK. It's kind of this leftist uh, uh, group that started operating militarily against the state in the early 1980s that's been fighting an insurgency with Turkey on and off since then. And That insurgency and counterinsurgency has killed tens of thousands of people. Uh, So there is a historical backdrop to this. The Kurds inside Syria, which are about 10% of the population, they are now have come under the control of a group called the PYD, and the PYD is essentially the PKK's affiliate in Syria, so the, the PKK's branch in Syria, and that's how Turkey sees it. Turkey sees that this group that controls that territory in Syria is an offshoot of the same group they've been fighting and in insurg- counter-insurgency with for the past four decades. So. This this really starts with the emergence of the ISIS problem in the context of the Syrian civil war in northern Syria in about tw- years twenty thirteen twenty fourteen. Uh, we did not have any specific plans that we are going to partner with the PYD to fight to fight the uh, ISIS forces. But what ended up happening was uh, there was a town in northern Syria called uh, Kobani, Turkish uh, Kurdish rather town. Sorry. That came under siege by ISIS, and uh, the Kurdish the Kurdish forces there put up quite a quite a fight. And essentially, we came in to help them against uh, against ISIS at that point. And we decided that a they were good fighters, they were well organized, they were disciplined, and uh, b and this was very important, and it sometimes gets lost in the debate. The uh, the PYD, uh, which is the political party that controls these these forces. Uh, who are called the YPG. I don't want to get lost in acronym soup, but I'm just kind of making my caveats. Uh, the, uh, the PYD did not, was not in conflict with the Syrian regime at the time. And we needed a local partner. We obviously needed a local partner because we didn't want to do all the fighting ourselves on the ground for obvious political strategic reasons. Uh, we needed a partner that would not drag us into the broader Syrian civil war if we put our weight behind them. And all the forces on the ground at the time that were fighting ISIS, whether it's uh, the Syrian regime or Hezbollah or the Syrian rebel groups that were fighting ISIS and the regime, everybody in one way or another was implicated in this fight, which we did not want to get implicated in. So almost by default and by elimination, it fell on the Kurds. Now, with the years that followed in the anti-ISIS fight, of course, relationships were built up at the military to military level. And, you know, quite a lot of sympathy was built for the Kurdish forces here in the United States as well. So things happened that were built on top of something that wasn't exactly planned that way. Uh, and in the, in the process, the United States ended up, uh, if you like, midwifing or incubating a, state con- a statelet controlled by the PYD on Turkey's borders under a U.S. security umbrella. So This is essentially what this is all about.
0: And so this kind of sub-national uh, state, uh, the, this kind of, uh, like you said, non—you know—sub-state, uh, whatever you want to call it—that uh, we were kind of giving an umbrella to—is um, is there? Turkey views that as a threat, and I mean, Syria likely also has. Um, you know, the the Assad regime looks at that with a certain amount of, of skepticism as well, right? I mean, there—it seems like they're whether it's Russia whether it's uh, Syria, whether it's Turkey, uh, the desire for control over these regions um, uh, and the elimination of kind of uh, actors over which you don't have control seem to be a, a major focus, correct
1: yeah absolutely I mean you know for the Turk or the Turks part, they see the Syrian Kurdish forces the PYD as uh, essentially literally just an extension of the guys they've been fighting in Turkey, and when you talk to Turks about the Kurdish forces in Syria—they call them PKK—and so, which is the name of that that Kurdish-based uh, Marxist insurgency that they've been fighting for so long. So for them, there's no there's no difference. It's just that in Syria, they happen to have freedom of maneuver and an American an American umbrella or cover, which is a worst nightmare situation for the Turks. Now, as far as the regime is concerned, the regime has a completely zero sum view of. Syria and Syrian politics. For the regime, all of Syria belongs to the regime, and any, anybody who works with outsiders to hand it off is a traitor, basically. And uh, even if they lose a bit of it here and there, eventually the long-term goal is that it's going to come back under regime control. Uh, so, yeah, that's the regime's point of view. And, uh, and, you know, there are other actors, too. It gets more complicated, but that, those are the basic, the basic core actors on the ground
0: so there seems to be a uh, a pattern in uh, kind of current us foreign policy and it's a baffling pattern to me uh because it seems to uh you know continually cause more you know problems than uh uh, uh than it stops um the, and it's, it's this kind of isolated view, a very kind of particular atomistic view of particular problems in uh, the Middle East and in and, and the world in general. So Trump will look at a situation and say, well, if, um, you know, Turkey's going to do what they're going to do, let's just take out our troops. And yet there are, are always these ancillary um, uh, effects. There are always um, a domino effect that kind of always sets up because, the um, international community, it's, it's a web of interests and it's, um, it's uh, a web of, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, problems and opportunities for, for different actors. And so if you, you know, move something on this side over here, if you um, remove troops, it's not just affecting the Kurds, right? It's not just affecting kind of what uh, Turkey does or what Assad does. But there are all of these kind of ancillary things that happen afterwards. And so I want to kind of go through some of those, um, maybe leading with just let's look at minority um, uh, groups in in this kind of region, in this northeast Syrian region. So ISIS, as it's spreading from Iraq across kind of the Levant into um, into Syria, it's, uh, you know, uh, Raiding towns and villages, it's uh, conducting a number of kind of like pernicious activities of of, of murder and rape, and you have uh, stories of uh, you know sexual slavery and villages being raised to the ground. They're Christian villages, they're Yazidi villages. Um, talk about and now the. the U.S. is absent now that there is an increase uh, in violence. You have a number of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and humanitarian organizations withdrawing you know, to uh, protect their own kind of forces, which leaves you know, all of the humanitarian needs kind of going unanswered. Um, so can you shed a little light for us on kind of the, the danger that now be, may be faced by minority groups that are kind of stuck in the middle, in the midst of this uh, regional fight?
1: Yeah, of course. And look, this is a really difficult one to play out because there's so many factors going on on the ground as we speak, and we don't know how the other main actors are going to react to our, uh, to our withdrawal. But definitely, you know, the, the very fact that ISIS was there and took control of so much land and was able to exert so much influence and control and was able to do so much damage to the, 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 the non-Sunni Muslim minorities inside these territories, that alone is, co- is cause c- for concern. I think the rationale, if you're the sort of person who supports the U.S. disengagement from this part, of, uh, this part of Syria, this part of the world, the rationale behind that is, well, you know, let those other actors who also hate ISIS take care of this problem. Uh, so the, uh, the assumption being the Syrian regime doesn't like ISIS either. Uh, the Kurds are still there and don't like ISIS. Russia hates ISIS. Iran hates ISIS. So if you listen to what Donald Trump says, That's what he's saying, right? These guys will take care of the ISIS problem, Uh, which raises the question of, are they capable of doing that? Uh, And do they have the willpower? Do they have the capability? Uh, There's a troubling track record on this because throughout most of the Syrian conflict since 2011, the Syrian regime, for example, and Russia and Iran didn't really pay a lot of attention to the ISIS problem. They seemed content to let ISIS take a big chunk of Syrian territory. Uh, but that was because they were fighting a more proximate threat, which was, for them, the mainstream Syrian opposition. That was the, ultimately the real problem, because those are the guys who might ev- eventually attract international support. They have a broader social base, etc., so we'll leave ISIS alone. question comes up for me is, okay, now, now if they take control of these territories, since the Kurds seem to be handing, them, handing the regime much of this land now voluntarily, will they actually serve as an effective counterterrorism force? I think they're not going to be as effective as the U.S.-Kurdish partnerships, frankly. However, I think there's also something to be said for what is in the long, in, long-term long interest of these minority groups. So, the Kurds, for example, uh, were, um, were put in this position where they were convinced by the United States that there was a long-term strategic partnership between America and the Kurds, and that therefore the Kurds could pursue their political ambitions with little regard to the provocative nature and what their adversaries would essentially do. So I'm not sure also it was wise to put the Kurds in a position where eventually they're going to be confronted by Turkey, which mm-hmm. would bring up the question of what we were going to do about it, and therefore would raise the question of what happens to them as a minority in this context. So that's also dangerous. You know, There's many angles to it, it's not just the ISIS angle.
0: Yes. uh, Let's, uh, if we can, though, uh, you know, head into the ISIS angle a little bit. I mean, uh, Trump has, um, uh, you know, declared multiple times that 100 percent of ISIS has been defeated. This was kind of the initial impetus behind his original uh, withdrawal request um, that uh, he uh, issued last year at the end of the year, you know, saying we've defeated ISIS. Why are we even there anymore? Uh, You know, they've they've uh, been eliminated. And yet, you know, the pushback on the part of the um, uh, international community and the part of his own administration was, well, yes, uh, geographically, they are no longer in control of villages or towns or or like any kind of territory, but they are still present. There's a nascent kind of presence of, of ISIS there um, that is uh, could very well still, you know, reignite. Um, much of that kind of presence has been uh, checked by, you know, the kind of Kurdish autonomy in this region. They have, you know, manned detention camps um, uh, that have ISIS fighters in them. They have also, you know, kind of refugee camps that have ISIS families of women and children Mm -hmm. and people who are associated uh, with ISIS that have been, all of which have been kind of policed uh, by uh, Kurdish forces. Now that the Kurdish forces are fighting, they're withdrawing. Um, There are reports from, you know, um, uh, the international community that the Uh, And the press that uh, you know, ISIS fighters have been able to uh, break out these detention camps. Some uh, number of thousands uh, have been, uh, you know, repatriated. I guess into uh, ether there um, that could also represent a threat. So, I mean, what is um, what is kind of the the prospect here of uh, an ISIS resurgence if everyone is, uh, you know, if the eye is off the ball, so to speak?
1: Oh, I think it's. uh, I think in you know, at some point or another, these things are going to find a stable end state, if you will, some sort of balance of power. But that is a messy and long process. And I think that that process definitely, definitely opens up an opportunity for ISIS to increase its operations, increase its reach. That, and having said that, I don't think the president really believes that they're defeated in that sense. I don't think anyone believes that. Uh, I think the president simply thinks it's somebody else's problem to manage. I don't think he thinks the, the deed is done. They're, they're not defeated. They've still been carrying out operations. They've they've come back from situations as bad as this in Iraq before. We mm-hmm. saw that time and time again, whether it was during the U.S. occupation or in the years that followed the U.S. withdrawal. They're very resilient. They're very smart. Uh, and they're still well-resourced. They still have experienced fighters in, uh, in their categories. And I, I completely agree with you about the prisoners. Uh I mean, maybe a little less so about the families, but especially the the hardened fighters themselves. ISIS in 2013 and 2012 launched a campaign in Iraq that was explicitly about breaking out, breaking fighters out of prisons and replenishing basically their ranks with these experienced hardened fighters. They will try to do this in Syria, I have no doubt, because it was very effective the last time they did it in Iraq. And that is that is definitely a concern. And let's see. You know, depends on who ends up controlling these prisons. I expect many of these are going to come under regime control, and I have no idea how the Syrian regime will handle ISIS prisoners. Uh, if they'll just, you know, be sentenced to mass execution, or will they be kept in these camps? I have no idea. It's a big unknown, and yeah, it's very disturbing. And I think one of the reasons why the United States is uh, trying to broker a ceasefire, in uh, or at least one of the reasons it should be trying to broker a ceasefire in in northern Syria
0: so it, it one of the, um you know, conundrums of uh, international affairs and foreign policy is, you know, the tendency to make the perfect the enemy of the good, right? I mean, that there is there's always a lot of criticism uh, on the part of uh, people outside of the US government, outside of the kind of foreign policy establishment that say, you know, well, this is a less than ideal situation. Um, you know, Trump should not have done this. Uh, now the region is in chaos, not as if the region was overly stable, you know, before this. Um, but there is, uh, you know, we are oftentimes fighting over um, the the lesser goods, right, uh, as opposed to kind of an ultimate good. I mean, an ultimate good is like everybody gets along, everybody plays together, there's some measure of kind of peace and, and everyone leaves one another alone, you know, and ISIS gives up its its ghost and, and sure. I don't know, starts farming or something, right? I mean, there's um, there are always these um, uh, ideals that are kind of set out there. Um, so we're in we're in an imperfect system we're playing with imperfect actors and so we're often choosing between the lesser of two evils and so what is puzzling to me and it may be puzzling to a lot of people and maybe you can just kind of set, shed some light on it is that um, uh, at what point are we uh, letting go of our own interests and uh, you know, putting our own interests, um subordinating those interests to the interests of, let's say, you know turkey or 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 Syria? that there is a uh, if you look at what happened on 9 the 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 lesson from that, hopefully, is that what's happening thousands of miles away and remote little mountaintops and and villages is very much still related to us, even if we would not. Like to think it so um, that someone in in one of these uh, caves can plot and plan um, a uh, an operation to kill thousands of Americans, and so it is it is in our interest to keep an eye on this this region and to be involved. And so, I mean, how do you see uh, kind of the interests of these various um, uh, actors in the region, whether it's Turkey or Syria or the United States, like uh, kind of playing out against one another? Is the United States um, effectively looking out uh, for its interests if it just says, all right, you guys all just fight it out and this has nothing to do with us, uh, especially when that leaves an opening for Russia, like help maybe assess how our actions are impacting the the various interests in the region? Yeah, this is
1: the the key question and the most
0: complicated one.
1: And I sympathize with anybody trying to find a kind of concrete policy solution to the the, the crisis in Syria, including the ISIS and the Kurdish issues. For me, there were always, I acknowledge everything you're saying, and of course it's important what happens over there, whether it's in a cave or a city, because it affects us and it affects our allies. Uh, But what, for me, there were always two kind of gaping flaws in this arrangement. Uh, the first one was that uh, that the president very clearly ran on a platform I think he was sincere about, that we needed to do as little of this stuff as possible, you know, America first, et cetera, that others shoulder the burden. And that's just a given, you know. it's not. I don't think he should have run on that platform, and I don't agree with him about everything, but that's who he is, right? That's the president. Mm-hmm. And that's the direct. Therefore, that is the direction that he wants to take the country in. And the bureaucracy and national security establishment needs to take that into account, because you know that's the president you have until you have a different one. And that's important. The second part for me, which is maybe even more unsolvable and has nothing to do with President Donald Trump, is uh, is the fact that it's frankly Turkey. I mean, Turkey is a, a Turkey is a NATO ally but even forget about being a NATO ally. Turkey is very, very powerful, basically a regional juggernaut of a country. And uh, it has been fighting this existential war with these guys for the past 40 years. It was never realistic that they were going to sit back and let us build whatever it is we were doing in Syria with the Kurds after ISIS sort of got subdued and things started to calm down and the broader Syrian civil war. I didn't think they were ever, ever tolerated. I thought at some point that there would be a challenge. And I thought that when that challenge happened then suddenly your kind of imperfect yet okay situation that you're talking about becomes a crisis and what is and how do we resolve that crisis it comes down at the end of the day like most conflicts who cares more about the issue right do we care more about the pyd in syria than turkey cares about Syria writ large and its own insurgency, because eventually we're going to get bored and move on to the next thing, and they're still going to be there. And that's a complete, like, a core national security interest for them. Imagine, like, for us, through our, I'm not not saying it's the same thing, but through our eyes, imagine if an ally of ours, let's say Great Britain, were to ally with Al-Qaeda in Mexico (laughs) and set up a state there. That's how they see it. That's exactly how they see it. They don't see it any differently. So that made it a completely for me unsustainable situation that would either result in us getting out of there or result in a essentially a war with Turkey over the p y d which although some people from a kind of ideological perspective might think that's sound, I think that 's a bad idea for a hundred reasons so it was not it was not very well planned and to be fair i don 't think that is that can depend on this current administration. I think that goes eventually falls on the, uh President Barack Obama and his administration, because this was their idea, and this is the logical outcome of that idea. So yes, I think it's not. It's, I think it's worse than imperfect. I, thought it, I think it's a bad plan, even though I understand why it happened to begin with that way. Now, everybody else, everybody else is still going to be there when we get out of uh, out of the area. Russia is still going to be there. Turkey, Iran, they're deeply invested actors. I think if you jump into a pool. Uh, where there are many, many deeply invested actors, you need to be very clear how much you care and how willing you are to go and further and further your aims. And it turns out we're not that willing about this particular thing. Okay. That does not mean that it has to happen in the crazy, chaotic, ridiculous way play it played out. So that's a different matter altogether.
0: Right. So there is a. I mean, that's always, though. I think the kind of the fight with um, uh, U.S. foreign policy, right, is is it's making the case of whether or not we should or should not be involved somewhere, like, I mean, that's, and it, it's a case that always has to uh, be made unless you're like Trump and you say, well, it doesn't really matter. But I mean, I, it's it's hard for me to see, um, <clears throat> uh, like, we're not pushing for perfection. Um, and I get that uh, our involvement with uh, the Kurds, you know, probably would have uh, at some point led to some sort of uh, a turning point. Um, But it's uh, it it still seems to me to be a a little bit kind of ham fisted, a little bit kind of chaotic. And um, when other actors in the region, specifically Russia, now rush in to um, uh, no pun intended, rush in to, you know, uh, kind of have kind of regional dominance. I mean, let's talk a little bit, maybe if we can, about Russia uh, as we kind of move to a close. Where is Russia's part in this? I mean, as the United States has kind of just said, hey, you guys fight it out. I mean, that's all fine and well. Uh, but now we have uh, an actor that has, uh, you know, uh, diametrically uh, uh, opposed values and, and uh, uh, ends in mind uh, to our own uh, in Russia that's coming along and brokering, you know, agreements between Syria and the Kurds that is now occupying, you know, formally uh, held U.S. bases. Uh, there are social you know, media videos of them walking around saying, you know, look, we're, we're now in this uh we're now holding what the US once, once had. So it's, um, uh, it seems to me that there's still an argument to be made that, uh, and this is a, a quote that I love from um, uh, General Mattis, you know, former Secretary of Defense who actually resigned, uh, you know, mostly over uh, President Trump's initial uh, decision to uh, announce withdrawal uh, from Syria last year. You know, he says that um, uh, the saying in the military is, you know, that the enemy gets a vote. Right. Yes. That you you may not want to do this. It may not. It may be hard. It may be difficult. It may be complicated. Um, But the enemy is also present. The enemy has a vote in this. And you may want to just pick up your you know toys and go home. Um, But if they are still there, if they are still active, if they are still antagonistic to our interests in the region and to our values, you know, globally, we we have to take that into account. And it's we do we. neglect all of that to our peril. Um, so look a- into the region and, and look at Russia a little bit and help us maybe understand where, uh, you know, Russia's interests are in this and that maybe the danger that our withdrawal, you know, uh, uh, poses with the increase in Russia, Russian presence there.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, of course, that's absolutely true that this, all of this stuff has implications uh, for our uh, allies, allies and rivals. The Russians uh, have... Uh, you know, some specific and some much broader interests in Syria, uh, the specific interests they had, that they've always had, is basically to protect their ally, uh, the Syrian regime, who they've been allied with for decades, and to make sure that that regime reasserts its control over all of Syrian territory. That's always been the case. That remains the number one Russian objective in Syria. The other objective is basically to humiliate us and decrease our own influence and. In, in the country. Uh, they, at the beginning, this took the form largely of making sure that the Syrian insurgency failed and that the Syrian opposition failed to extract political concessions from the Syrian regime. The Russia was a big part of that, obviously, with the direct military intervention in Syria on the regime side. So that was mission accomplished for them. Uh, and now, because uh, the Kurdish forces cannot stand up to Turkey, essentially a Turkish invasion. What they've preferred to do is reach uh, an agreement with the regime to essentially hand over most of the territory they gained control of uh, throughout the last few years in in partnership with us. And that means that the regime control geographically in the country expands. And for Russia, again, that's a step in the right direction. Uh, It's also good for the Russians. For the United States to be perceived as kind of unreliable and feckless and uh, bad to its allies and things of that sort, these are all Russian games. So, yeah, no, definitely Russia is one of the winners here, no doubt about it.
0: Well, it's a, um, a complicated situation that's quickly changing. Uh, and so um, we appreciate your uh, insight. I appreciate your insight. Yeah. Uh, we will continue to uh, you know, monitor the situation. Uh, we've been talking to Faisal Latani, a non-resident senior fellow at uh, the Atlantic um, Council, and uh, discussing Syria and uh, the Kurds and the U.S. withdrawal from the region. Um, Faisal, thank you for your uh, expertise and your time. Thank you, Drew. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.